Unlocking the Secrets of Jupiter's Mysterious Moons with Juno, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah El Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. NASA's Juno spacecraft has taught us a lot about Jupiter, but what about the moons that orbit it? We delve deeper into the fascinating new discoveries about Ganymede, Europa, and Io with Scott Bolton, the principal investigator of NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. Then we'll kick it over to Dr. Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, for What's Up and your weekly guide to the night sky. Now on to some of this week's space mission briefings. The Indian Space Research Organization announced last week that the launch of their Shukrayan-1 Venus orbiter might be delayed. The mission aims to study the Venusian atmosphere, geology, and potentially look for signs of life. Shukrayan was originally planned to launch in 2024, but it hasn't yet received official approval from the Indian government. This could push the launch back until 2031. In the United States, SpaceX has reported that it's getting closer to its first orbital launch of the Starship, a reusable, super-heavy-lift launch vehicle. They're preparing for a final series of tests before an orbital launch attempt in the coming weeks. The company currently does not have a launch license from the U.S.'s Federal Aviation Administration for the vehicle. And it should be noted that SpaceX has a history of being a little inaccurate with their predictions regarding the readiness of Starship for launch. But even so, it's very exciting. And for those of you who love staring up at the moon, the National Science Foundation's Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, USA, has captured the most detailed images of the moon ever taken from Earth using a new prototype radar system. The system captured high-resolution images showing the beautiful details of Tycho Crater, a large impact in the moon's southern hemisphere. This system will be used to detect distant asteroids that could potentially pose a threat to Earth, but in the meantime, its pretty pictures are definitely worth a peek. We share more information about these stories and the beautiful new images of the moon in our January 20th edition of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter. You can get it sent to your inbox for free every Friday or read it online at planetary.org slash downlink. All right. Now get ready for some Jovian moon science, because we are about to get into it. In 2011, NASA launched its Juno spacecraft to Jupiter as part of NASA's New Frontiers program. The mission was equipped with a slew of scientific instruments designed to study the solar system's largest planet. It arrived at Jupiter in 2016, and since then, it's been busy studying Jupiter's atmosphere, magnetic field, and gravity, among other things. Juno's primary mission was a wild success, but it wrapped up in July of 2021. The spacecraft is now on an extended mission, not just studying the planet, but taking a closer look at its moons. The new data and images from the Jovian system have revealed many amazing new things about three of Jupiter's moons, Ganymede, Europa, and Io. Juno flew by Ganymede in 2021. It's not only the largest moon of Jupiter, but the largest moon in our solar system. It's also the only moon known to have a global magnetic field, and like so many moons of interest, it may have a subsurface ocean. From there, Juno's orbits brought it progressively closer to Europa, another moon of Jupiter with a potential liquid water ocean under its icy crust. 
Juno's breathtaking views of Europa in 2022 are just one more reminder of why that world is of such interest in the search for life. The last moon we'll explore today is Io, the most volcanically active body that has ever been discovered. Juno has already taken outstanding data on Io, but it's just the start as the spacecraft will have a lot of future opportunities to explore that eruptive moon closer and closer. Together, these moons represent an opportunity not only to study other worlds and search for life, but to learn more about the ways that gas giants like Jupiter and their moons interact and impact one another. It's also an excellent example of the creative ways that teams can repurpose spacecraft instruments to learn even more than we expected. With upcoming missions like the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE, and NASA's Europa Clipper mission, we're about to learn so much more about these worlds than we ever did before. Our guest today is Scott Bolton, a planetary scientist and the principal investigator for NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. Bolton has worked on missions to explore the solar system for decades, including Magellan, Voyager, Galileo, Cassini, and now Juno. You may notice a clicking sound in Scott's audio. We're sorry we couldn't remove it, but we don't think it'll get in the way of all the great things you'll hear from him. Thanks for joining me, Scott, and welcome back to Planetary Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to share the exciting news of Juno with you. I wanted to congratulate you on the success of Juno's extended mission. These last two years have been absolutely wild. Yeah, it's been amazing uh, for me and the whole team. I mean, I think when we were first creating the mission and kind of envisioning the whole mission once we got to Jupiter, I don't think we thought that far ahead and said, okay, in the extended mission, we will adapt our orbit and we'll get close flybys of the satellites and we'll go right into the rings. I mean, it was just... It's so amazing to think back to the days when we were first creating this and then where we are today. I'd like to think I have a great imagination, but I don't think I imagined enough. Well, it's really impressive how you've kind of repurposed the spacecraft that was meant to study Jupiter exclusively. And then just the creative way that you've used these different instruments to now look at its moons. And I wanted to say I watched your press conference uh, that you gave in December at the American Geophysical Union. Yeah, it was an exciting time. And what's really beautiful about the whole thing is we're still studying Jupiter. So even though we, we've added these other targets, really important targets like the moons and the rings, we're still studying the aurora. We're still studying the interior and the atmosphere of Jupiter. We're still, I mean, we're getting closer and closer to the northern hemisphere and the poles. And, and there's so many interesting things uh, that we've discovered about the northern hemisphere and the, and the polar regions with these giant polar cyclones. Um, now we're able to do it all. And so I feel like we've really become a system-wide explorer. Absolutely. And those pictures that JunoCam got of the storms around the North Pole of Jupiter are, are just absolutely wild. And, and I was thinking about this the other day that I wanted to thank you personally for the role that you played in getting JunoCam on that spacecraft, because I know the initial plans for this mission didn't necessarily include that camera. And I think there's so much value for the public and for science to have a camera like that on board. So thank you. Well, it wasn't just me, but my whole team, we couldn't imagine going to Jupiter without a camera. And so uh, we were persistent. And I think we should include one of these kind of cameras on every mission. Let's just dive into this. Let's start with Ganymede, you know, the biggest moon in the solar system. And when Juno has taken images of this place, 
it's really revealed a whole new level of detail that we never saw with a mission like, say, Galileo. And I'm wondering kind of what was the reaction from your team when you first got those images of Ganymede back? That must have been amazing. It was a very emotional and exciting time. And of course, we only got a few. You know, one of the things about our orbit is we're moving fast and we're spinning, right, twice per minute. So you can only take so many images before you fly right past the place. But we came in and we got, you know, some fantastic images with Juno Cam. And then we have a special camera that's really a navigation tool and it's low light, looks at stars to navigate, but we use it for science. And so we actually took a picture of the night side lit up by Jupiter shine. Of course, we have the infrared and then the ultraviolet. And then we have a special tool that's the microwave. That was designed and actually invented for Juno, but it was designed so that we could see through the cloud tops and the atmosphere of Jupiter and see down inside into the atmosphere structure below where the sunlight reaches. But when you take an instrument like that and you point it at an icy body, you see into the ice. So we're getting the first maps of what the ice looks like below the top level of the surface. So the whole thing's a windfall. I mean, we were just really excited. And we knew that we had these new advanced instruments. And when we pointed them at the satellite, we'd get a lot of great stuff. But I don't think we understood how important and how great it really would be because Nobody had ever looked with this microwave instrument at an icy body. We kind of had an idea what we'd see, but we, had, we didn't even know what we were going to see at Jupiter with it when we first did it. We invented it. You know, it's, it's new. But I think it's really exciting when you do that. And of course, we have a great set of instruments for what we call fields and particles to study the magnetosphere. And Ganymede's got its own magnetic field. So we were coming in and getting great measurements of that as well. So it was a real windfall. We were really excited. Oh, yeah. All of these interesting things that you've learned just reiterate how important it is to study these moons. I think what's really cool about the microwave instrument, as you were saying, it allows us to peer beneath the ice. But a lot of these moons have potential subsurface oceans, and that can tell us so much about not just how the terrain interacts with the inside, but about their potential habitability underneath. What are we learning about the internal workings of Ganymede and, and how the surface interacts with the subsurface? Well, you know, Ganymede has this dark and bright terrains and that it has these places where there's these fresh craters that look like they just blew fresh snow all over the place. The dark ones are warmer and the bright ones are a little bit colder. And it's really amazing to compare the different terrain types and see how deep the fracturing goes. And we can even make an estimate of how thick the conductive ice shell is. And uh, of course, Ganymede's ocean is thought to be pretty deep. I don't even think that uh, even with our longest wavelength, that we get all the way down to the liquid. But we are getting where the conductive ice shell probably goes through and make an estimate of that based on the thermal gradients. And so it's really exciting to be able to do this new kind of science and set the stage, even contribute a unique data set that can then be combined with NASA's Clipper mission and the ESA JUICE mission, which are going to study these moons much more closely, but they don't have our instrumentation. So you actually get a whole another level when they get there. We're going to, I'm sure that we'll go back and we'll combine the data sets and see what else we can learn. I know you mentioned this earlier that, you know, Ganymede is one of those rare bodies in the solar system that has its own kind of global magnetic field, but it's so close to Jupiter that these magnetic fields are constantly interacting. And Juno has taught us a whole lot about how these things interact over time. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, in fact, we were we were really fortunate. We when we went by, we were going by at a fairly unique trajectory compared to what Galileo had done, and that's partly because we're just in this uh, orbit that's heavily inclined. Right, we're in a polar orbit around Jupiter, coming in from a different side, sort of a different perspective, and we fly through, and we have a very elaborate and very capable fields and particles suite of instruments. So what we saw was you know, a snapping of the magnetic field. So what happens at the Earth, and we and we see this with the solar wind, is our magnetic field lines kind of connect and and reconnect back up as it as we orbit around, as we rotate around, right? We are taking our magnetic field and and we're moving it within the solar wind. And sometimes the field lines snap and then they'll reorient and they'll get connected. And that, you know, has a big effect on our um electrical storms and aurora and things like that. And Ganymede has this ma- its own magnetic field sitting inside Jupiter's field, right? It's not necessarily the solar wind, but it's in a background field that's very strong. Scientists have theorized that maybe this reconnection might be happening there, and it, and it should be. We actually saw the reconnection happen. And so we saw an evidence of, of this snapping of the field. It's um, almost like um, creating... Uh, magnetic fireworks, right? Because when this kind of thing happens, when the magnetic field lines break and then reconnect, you get a lot of particle energy that's uh, accelerated very quickly. And uh, while we haven't been able to completely tie that into the aurora as far as location, we've learned a lot about it. And it's probably is linked to the aurora that's on Ganymede itself. So Ganymede has its own aurora, just like the Earth has its own magnetic field. And now we know it has its own connection and reconnection. And we're still learning about that uh, on Earth with missions that are studying this phenomena. And so, of course, the fundamental tool of science is comparative study. So now we have this other body to look at reconnection with, uh, a little moon inside of Jupiter's magnetic field. And it's just exciting to watch these magical magnetic fireworks go off. I'm sure we could talk about Ganymede for this entire interview, and and I almost want to, but I want to make sure that we move on to Europa and Io, because, you know, Europa is one of those moons that just absolutely captures the imagination with its possibilities and the search for life and just how beautiful it is in general. And I know that you use that, that same microwave instrument that you use to look at Ganymede to look at Europa. And there was a very similar situation where the surface terrain kind of connects with what's going on underneath, but the microwave readings from that world are very different from what we're seeing from Ganymede, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that tells us that the ice shells are very different from each other, but we kind of knew that. Scientists have theorized that the liquid ocean at Europa is probably shallower than Ganymede. And I think we see some evidence that that's probably true. We may even be able to estimate that. It's, it's kind of early for me to throw out the numbers for you, but I think that we're seeing down into the liquid or getting close. One of the startling things was you didn't see as much variety. So Ganymede has this dark and bright terrain, and, and we saw very different signatures in the microwave from that as we went into the ice. And um, on Europa, we don't see quite as much variety. There is this little bit of variety that might be connected to what's called chaos terrain versus the normal smooth terrain. And chaos is just where a lot of ridges and things are happening. Something's happening there or has happened. And that might be a little bit different, but it, it looks very similar to the other one, but it is a little bit different. Whereas Ganymede, there's a much bigger variety 
But the exciting thing about Europa is, as you say, you know, there is a potential for habitability. I think both of them have uh, that potential. But Europa, of course, the ocean is, is thought to be salty and it's thought to be maybe 20 to 50 kilometers thick. Our microwaves probably seen down that deep. So we're trying to do all of the analysis to understand whether we're really seeing into the liquid and how deep it might be. Is it variable across the surface? And it's also intrinsically exciting to many of us because of um, Arthur C. Clarke's story, oh, right? Yeah. And he, he somehow had a vision and knew Europa was special even back then in the 60s. I want to move on to Io now because it's weird, but this is one of my favorite moons in the entire solar system just because of how absolutely terrifying it seems to be. I mean, the most volcanic body in the entire solar system. I have to get a closer look at this. And Juno's about to show us so much more. And I cannot tell you how excited I am. Yeah, it's very exciting for us, too. We're, we're already getting incredible stuff because we go over at a distance, but we have a ph phenomenal infrared camera that was contributed by the Italian Space Agency. And it's sitting there monitoring the volcanoes at pretty high resolution. And so every couple of months, we see another image and we get to see how the volcanoes change. And not only that, but we're looking at the pole, the North Pole, uh, which hasn't been seen that much. But you see a lot of the of the of the body and we're watching this. Uh, and of course, one of the big questions is, is how do these volcanoes affect Jupiter and its giant magnetosphere? You have this monster planet with even a more monster magnetic field. And here's this little moon pumping out volcanic material all over, and it's driving the entire system. I mean, this little engine is bumping around Jupiter, this giant, right? And so we're probably going to have one of the first really thorough experiments where we can look at the effects of Io's volcanoes and how they're varying and understand how it affects Jupiter's aurora, Jupiter's magnetosphere, the whole Io Taurus, which is just filled with this volcanic material whizzing around because it gets picked up by the magnetic field. And of course, Jupiter's magnetic field is spinning with Jupiter every 10 hours. And so it actually slams into Io. Io spits out material, it gets charged, and then it bangs on it on the backside. And it's just amazing. This is like a little engine going on. It's actually a big engine. We're sitting there. We're already getting phenomenal images of Io, and we just got some on this last orbit. They're just starting to come out now. I think the visible one was was released. Uh, that we're pretty far away, sixty, seventy thousand kilometers, and so it's it's not real high resolution. But the infrared camera has really high resolution already at this point. And we're sitting there looking at, you know, 20 kilometers or less resolution. So you can really pick out the volcanoes and even start to see their shape. And then we're just going to get closer. Each orbit, we get a little bit closer until next year, around this time, actually, we'll fly by at 1,500 kilometers distance, twice. That one we get to do twice. That's so exciting. I cannot wait. Like, looking at the images that we've seen so far, it's almost like... I mean, I don't want to jump the gun here, but it almost looks like there's pools of lava on that world. Like, is that possible? Absolutely. There's pools and lakes of lava, and you can start to see their shape now in some of these infrared images that we're getting. And you can also see that they're varying, right? Some are hotter than at one time, and then they, you know, cool off and another one gets hotter. And so it's a really amazing place. We're in a very unique time in history where we're all lucky to be alive at this 
era of exploration and starting to see other worlds as we've never been able to see them before, start to realize that maybe we're not alone, that there's other planets and planetary systems out there, and we're starting to see those. And so it's a very exciting time to be on the Earth living as we really change our whole perspective. It's a little like a renaissance. It must have been like that at the time of Galileo. It does feel very lucky to be alive during this time of exploration. And I'm sure that one of these days, people are going to look back on this and and envy this age of exploration and discovery and all the things that we didn't know yet. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you for joining me for this conversation. And and hopefully in the future, you know, when the Juno mission does end, I can invite you back on or even before that, when we learn all these new amazing things about IO. Thanks so much, Scott. It's wonderful having Scott Bolton back on Planetary Radio. I could talk to that guy for hours. You can hear the extended edition of my interview with Scott Bolton, the principal investigator for NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter, in the podcast and online version of this show. You can catch it at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up with Bruce Betts after this short break. Hello, I'm George Takei. And as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Dr. Bruce Betts. I am joined once more by Bruce Betts. What's up, Bruce? Hey, super spectacular, wonderful radio host, Sarah. Oh, what did I do to deserve that? <laughs> you said some nice things about me in previous episodes. So let's just, uh, what's up? Uh, you know, the, those things. You know, it's not up much longer as Saturn. Saturn's going away for a little while. It always comes back, though. Don't worry. But if you look low in the West, actually not even that low nowadays, you can see super bright Venus shortly after sunset. And Saturn's still hanging out below it. But again, it's going to be really tough. Super bright Venus. And then you go up in the sky and you'll see really bright Jupiter, both brighter than the brightest star in the sky. Keep going across the sky. You'll find this reddish, orangish looking kind of bright star. That's actually Mars. And near it is a not quite so bright reddish star that actually is a star that's Aldebaran in Taurus. Uh, so those are all up. I also, when I was staring at the winter constellations that are so lovely, so I encourage you to check out Orion and all of its friends. If you follow Orion's belt off to the left, if you've got Orion oriented upright, uh, you will find the brightest star in the sky, not to be confused with the brighter planets. And that is Sirius, the dog star. And if you have a clear enough sky, you can look for the outline of a stick figure dog, which almost kind of exists, which is the constellation Canis Major, the greatest dog. 
the greatest dog. I know too that, uh, you know, some people, it's, it's a little early for this, but some people are beginning to get images of that new comet, uh, 2022 E3 ZTF. So, you know, well it's, uh, done. You didn't even read that off of anything. I know it's, a, it's in there now. You're going to need binoculars or a telescope, but you can check it out at least with a telescope at this point. It uh, may or may not become visible from a dark site shortly with just your eyes. Okay, let's go on to this week in space history. This is the the darkest week in the U.S. space program. Basically, all three of the fatal accidents involving spaceflight occurred during this week or close to it. Uh, Apollo 1 fire in 67, the Challenger disaster in 86, and the Columbia disaster 20 years ago now in 2003. So we remember all of the, all of them and all of the other people contributing in their brave ways to space exploration. And on a happier note, we also had Explorer 1 this week in 1958, the U.S.'s first satellite successfully in orbit, and Opportunity landed on Mars in 2004. I move on. Shall I? Yes. All right. To that was a good one. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hear you've you've been talking about Jovian moons. I have. Yeah, that was really cool. We're learning some awesome stuff there. Did you know if you put the the three icy Galilean satellites, so all but Io. The icy ones, if you put them next to each other, as never happens, that would be about the width of the Earth, about the diameter of the Earth. I didn't know that, but that would be a cool graphic just to show. I've got it in my head if you need it. All right, we move on to trivia. I asked you, where in the solar, where in the solar system is Doom Mons, named after Mount Doom in the Lord of the Rings? How do we do? We did really well. Clearly, we have a lot of overlap between space fans and people who love Lord of the Rings because we got a lot of answers to this one. Oh, good. And the answer, of course, is Saturn's moon Titan. And Dumons isn't the only mountain on that moon that's named for Tolkien's books. Uh, there are a lot, including some of my personal favorites, Angmar Montes, Erebor Montes, and of course, the coolest one, Misty Montes, named for the Misty Mountains. Anyway, let us move on let us to move finding on. out who won. Yeah, well, we have two winners this time. And the prize are uh, these beautiful Artemis pins that Bruce and I procured on our adventures to Kennedy Space Center. So our first winner is Asan Beglu from Richmond Hill, Ontario, Canada. And our second winner is Eric O'Day from Winchester, Massachusetts, USA, who said, what a place for vacation, surfing on the Kraken Sea and skiing on Mount Doom. <laughs> oh, there's no actual Kraken in there. Well, we're looking, uh, no, but I can't discuss it with you. Mm -hmm. And I, I also really liked this comment that we got from Louis Igo from Sock Center, Minnesota, USA, who clearly likes my choice of using dice instead of random number generator to find <laughs> the, the winner for this, because they wrote in, go polyhedrons of randomness. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, all right. So what what's this week's trivia question? All right. So what is the only mission to fly by Jupiter, then go inwards rather than outwards in the solar system? Mm. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest and you could win a rubber asteroid. Classic rubber asteroid. 
If anybody would like to win a rubber asteroid, you can enter our trivia contest at planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, February the 1st at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about squishy asteroids. Thank you. Good night. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Planetary Radio. But we'll be back next week with Jacob Lustig-Jaeger, a member of the team that announced the discovery of the first exoplanet confirmed with the James Webb Space Telescope. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our amazing members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.